of a clear blue sky and the tears that I cried for that woman gonna flood you big river and I'm gonna sit right here until I die I met her accidentally in St. Paul, Minnesota and it tore me up every time I heard her drawl, southern drawl then I heard my dream went back downstream to Borton and Davenport and I followed you big river when it called Hello and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will finish up my thoughts on Life on the Mississippi by Mark Twain. And thinking back, I, I think uh, we can, there's not that much more to say, I suppose. I, I encourage you to listen to the previous episodes where I go into the first three-fourths of that book. This is just the end. It really, um, in the broad story, uh, such as there is in this book, this section uh, really digs into New Orleans as a representation of the South. Um, And then we see Mark Twain return to the North, return to his hometown where he visits, and he has the experience of being the the middle-aged man returning to his hometown, seeing how people changed and, and reflecting on the overall change in America as well as within his own um, acquaintances. Um, and then, and that's kind of it. Then he goes up all the way up to like Wisconsin and Minnesota. I think he goes to St. Paul and that's where the, the book ends. And uh, as throughout the book, we see his stories about his experiences, his tall tales, his exaggerated stories. This is uh, kind of a notable section because it's where we get the story about the name Mark Twain, right? With Captain Isaiah Sellers, you might be familiar with this. The story is that it's him who originally used the, the name Mark Twain and our Mark Twain just uh, picked that up in his journalism. Although there's some doubt, I guess, about the reality of that story. Um, but with many of these stories here, it's really hard to know what's true or not. A lot of it seems to be uh, exaggerated or, or, or kind of expanded on. For instance, he talks about um, another Sellers, uh, Eshkol Sellers. This was the name that was really chosen for a character in the Gilded Age. But there was a real Eshkol Sellers. And there's a funny back and forth where uh, Mark Twain's co-writer suggests using this and... Mark Twain says, like, that's a crazy name, so let's use it. And the other guy, uh, the co-author of that book says, well, it doesn't matter because there is a guy named, I met this guy named with this name, but he'll never read the book, so we don't have to worry about it. And then he get they get sued for libel for using this name, and then he makes a joke about how they had to destroy 10 million books, probably more, uh, you know, exaggerating his own success as a writer. Um, now, that sort of really does happen, though, but it's exaggerated in this tale. Um, I think it was just he asked, I don't know if there's a whole libel suit involved in it, but um, the, it's, it's dramatized and, and made more exciting by, by Mark Twain. And it's, it's all for the good. It's, it's certainly a fun book. Um, it's, it's one that grow, grew on me. I, 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 I liked the really early part. And then when it got to the travel log part, I kind of tuned out for a little bit. But towards the end, when it got to New Orleans, I was really my interest was really peaked at several points because it was really getting into the the psychology of the post-war south the psychology we need to be really clear of losers you may have heard of this victory culture idea this idea that the united states for most of its history won every war 
always was triumphant in its expansions and its military expeditions. And of course, that ends with the Vietnam War. That's kind of the standard no notion. The Cold War undermined victory culture. And it just becomes a, a true cultural thing. It's no longer based in the reality of military successes. Instead, you have military frustrations and setbacks. I think that's continued. The U.S. hasn't really won a decisive war. Well, I guess the, the first Gulf War in a sense, but um, the U.S. hasn't been in the business of winning wars like it had throughout much of its history. That victory culture only applies to the North. It does not apply to the South, who were losers and were occupied and had uh, a peace imposed upon them and had their culture transformed to a degree, right? We, we just finished a whole series on the Civil War. And, and we talked a lot about the lost cause ideology. And so I don't want to feed too much into that, obviously, the idea that, you know, there was a... But, but the fact of the matter is they were losers. And they had to come to terms with being losers. Right? And that is... Part of that is a cultural reactionary, a backlash to progress. An idea that we need to go back to our cultural roots. Um, and that's what he notices. So he... He talks about, uh, for instance, in, um, well, the, in the chapter City Sites, he, he talks sort of about the memory of the memory of war in New Orleans, the War of 1812, but also the Civil War. The Civil War is what's going to be on their minds. And we see monuments to Lee and Jackson in here in a painting. And he, he kind of makes fun of a painting because it doesn't have a caption. So he kind of makes up possible captions for this, this uh, painting kind of teasing uh, these characters of, of Jackson and Lee. He says, well, it, one label will fit as well as another, he says. He says, quote, first interview between Lee and Jackson. Last interview between Lee and Jackson. Jackson introducing himself to Lee. Jackson accepting Lee's invitation to dinner. Jackson declining Lee's invitation to dinner with thanks. Jackson apologizing for a heavy defeat. Jackson reporting a great victory. Jackson asking Lee for a match. Um... But the, the underpinning of this is this memorialization of these traitors and, and, and war criminals and, and overall asshole slaveholders. Which is still an issue today, obviously. Otherwise, we wouldn't sometimes still be talking about what to do with these Confederate monuments. Um, the bottom of the ocean is too good for them. They should be melted down and, and, and transformed in some way into reparations. Maybe, maybe we make them into... A, uh, uh, Shaw uh, statues or something or John Brown statue yes we melt down all of the confederate statues and recast them as John Brown statues and put one in every southern town like the John Brown from that, that that mural painting where he's got the big beard and the gun in one hand and the bible in the other that's, that's, the, paint, that's the statue we want to make out of the out of the old confederate statues that's my plan that's my modest proposal for what to do with those um, I'm sure Mark Twain would not disagree. Although he, he did fight for the South, right? He um, spent his three days in the Southern Army. Or so, we'll get to that in roughing it. I think it was a little bit more than three days. Maybe four days. Next chapter, 45, we talk, we get Southern sports, uh, which starts out with war. War is a topic of conversation. So he talks about how in the North, you sit down for a dinner party, 
And there's like a one in six chance you'll probably talk about the war. You know, someone had been there and you'll hear war stories. But chances are you're not going to hear that because most northerners weren't actually in the field. Women were far from it. But if you're in the south, everyone was in the war or affected by the war in some direct way. So you're not going to avoid it. So it's part of this inverse of the victory culture, right? Like most people experience the victory culture as a culture, right? They see it on TV or they see it in the movies or they read it in the books. That's how most Americans experience the West as a cultural phenomenon. And yes, it's tied to victory culture, of course. The South experienced defeat in a much more personal way. I, and, and don't mistake what I'm saying here with, with empathy. Uh, it's just the reality that these people had to come to terms with being losers and themselves personally being losers. And so one way to deal with that is to talk about your war stories, I suppose, or to not let it die because that's, that's your identity. You can't escape it. You can't be forgotten because what, what else do you have? You got, you, you make the lost cause, man. That's what you do, I suppose. Um, but uh, the t chapter is called Southern sports. One of these being talking about the war, other sports he talks about is cockfighting. And he, he enjoys uh, a cockfight. It's a nice little scene about that. Horse races. Things like that. Different um, parts of it. Now, what he's really getting to here, especially in Chapter 46, Enchantments and Enchanters, which is about Mardi Gras, is this contrast, especially in, in New Orleans with the French culture, of the transition from the French Revolution being a moment. And, of course, it influenced America greatly. Um, Thomas Jefferson was influenced by it, obviously. And many Americans saw hope for a broader war, a continuation of their revolution in the French Revolution. And then you have uh, this being replaced, this mythology of the French Revolution being replaced with a mythology of Sir Walter Scott. And he's pretty harsh. He, obviously, this guy's a shitty writer and uh, should not be a focus of too much of our literary attentions. There's certainly not going to be a 100 pages of the time podcast devoted to Sir Walter Scott, most, most, mostly because he's not an, Ameri not an American. I did do James Fenimore Cooper, um, which has his own sins, as Mark Twain will remind us shortly, I believe, um, maybe in a few months, when I finally get to those essays. Cooper might be our our Sir Walter Scott. Here's what he says. But that's not the the problem. Isn't that he was a, a garbage writer? The problem is he was a garbage writer that people read and influenced them. So it's like you had all these Southern boomers. I don't know. I guess boomers is the wrong word. I guess there sort of was a baby boom, I suppose, after the American Revolution. But anyways, the equivalent: these people living in the past, these MAGA types. And what they read is Sir Walter Scott, for whatever bizarre reason. Quote, Sir Walter had such a large hand in making Southern character, as it existed before the war, that he is in great measure responsible for the war. It seems a little harsh towards the dead man to say that, he never sh that we never should have had any war but for Sir Walter. And yet something of a plausible argument might perhaps be made in support of that wild proposition. The Southerner of the American Revolution owned slaves. 
so did the Southern of the Civil War. But the former resembles the latter as an Englishman resembles a Frenchman. The change of character can be traced rather more easily to Sir Walter's influence than to any other thing or person. I probably wouldn't be as exaggerated as that, but culture certainly matters. And when you have a, a generation of people obsessed with chivalry or a, a mythology of chivalry, they're going to see war a certain way and, and not see it for what it was, not see the, not see it in terms of the limbs, the severed limbs and the broken families and the, the corpses strewn over the battlefield. But see it in terms of stupid gallantry. Um, now, the good news of that is that it probably helped contribute to why the South lost the war. Because they, they fought wars like idiot medieval knights. It's a pernicious influence. Culture can be a pernicious influence. That's why we should watch what we watch, I suppose. And watch what we consume in terms of media. Um... In the next chapter, uh, we see Mark Twain meeting um, Joel Chandler, Joel Chandler Harris, the author of the Uncle Remus stories. That's a fun little uh, aside where, you know. Now, remember here, Mark Twain is supposed to be interviewing Steamboat Men for a memoir about steamboats. But he's not doing that. He's talk he, he talks to some, but mostly he talks to uh, people that, that kind of interest him. Um, in chapter 48, he finally gets to that. He, he meets Horace Bixby, his old comrade, his teacher. And he notices how he didn't age at all in, in, in 20 years, which is kind of a nice little, nice little uh, a fun little observation he has with that. But then they go visit this Warmouth plantation where we see mechanized production, increasing production. But even this, because he's always talking about progress in the South and the change in the South. But even this is kind of gilded in which yeah they're producing more sugarcane but but declining rates of profit yo it's like like they didn't read marks yet and, and didn't realize that mechanization is not going is just going to increase production um and increase your capital investment and not increase overall profit because profit comes from the exploitation of of labor so they're deeply in debt because of these investments and profit rates are going down and prices are going down and all that. Um, but anyways, progress, still progress, I suppose, technological progress. Um, we also in the same chapter, because it's called Sugar and Postage, the postage is referring to a seance they have and just another typical Mark Twain fraud, which he loves to, to lambast. So basically at this point, um, he begins to return home and where he returned they return back north travel north and make their way back to Hannibal um, which is a nice few chapters uh, set in Hannibal but I mean the basic theme of all of this is the whole thing is kind of returning home right the whole point we start with his youth as a pilot and then we see how uh, he comes back years later after this you know 20 years after the Civil War and see how the South changed and so what better place to study that than your hometown? Um, and as we've seen throughout this book, there's change and there's not change, right? Like there's new buildings and the city has grown. Hannibal has, has, has emerged as kind of a mid-sized city. It's transformed, but at the same time, it's like the same people roughly. And, and yeah, the people are just older, but they're kind of the same. Or, you know, some people move or whatever, but it's... 
the change is kind of surface deep. Um, but that's what he constantly comes back to as a theme is the ch is what Hannibal is has become or is becoming. Um, he writes, for instance, the people of Hannibal are not more changed than is the town. It is no longer a village. It is a city with a mayor and a council and waterworks and probably a debt. It has 15,000 people. It's a thriving and energetic place and is paved like the rest of the West and South where a well-paved street and a good sidewalk are things so seldom seen that one doubts them when he does see them. The customary half dozen railroad center in Hannibal now, if there's any new depot which costs, and, and there is a new depot which costs $100,000. In my time, the town had no specialty, no commercial grandeur. The daily packet usually landed a passenger and brought a catfish and took away another passenger and a hateful, hatful of freight. But now a huge commerce and lumber has grown up and a large miscellaneous commerce is one of the results. A deal of the money changes hands there now." End quote. So there's there's certainly a, a material change he's describing here. And it is this transition to a new type of capitalism, a new stage of, of capitalism that doesn't need the river anymore. I mean, that's the whole point of the book in many ways, is that the river becomes a banal tourist attraction. And the steamboat men become tourist attractions. There's a whole chapter about how they they have to start going part-time as farmers and they lose money as farmers so they go to steamboating but steamboating isn't an artery of the nation anymore it's railroads railroads are what's coming railroads are already there and they bypass the river you don't need the river anymore you can you don't you don't need to take your goods down to new orleans and then around on a boat to china you just zip it across to san francisco um so that, that is change, and Hannibal theme seems to be thriving from it, but the people are the same. It's like the soul's the same. And he, that's the same thing with the South as a whole. The, the South, it's changing, it's transforming, but it's kind of still stuck there. There's like a paralysis. Now, I suppose I can wrap things up. Um, because I think there's not that much more to maybe say about this book. Um, but I tend to overthink things. Someone criticized me the other day in a comment that, that sometimes a cigar is such a cigar or whatever. That's about a Philip Dick thing I wrote. Um, yeah, but then what's the point of talking about it, right? But one thing to say is that this is really, really a funny book. Um, there's a great passage on like, it's like, what's it called a question of law which is like a murder versus suicide thing like if you give a knife to a drunk person and he stabs you like is that murder or suicide um really hilarious stuff about this guy named jimmy finn who um the question it was also a question of kind of like murder or suicide um based on like people that he knows in his youth i, th I think he really has a lot of fun in the sections on hannibal because he can kind of dig up all these acquaintances he had in the past um, the stuff when he goes farther north to uh, St. Paul is, is, is worth reading too, I think. Um, the, you know, he sees that as a newer south, a more youthful region of the country, I suppose, um, and, and more connected to the new way of doing things in terms of architecture and style and, 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 and overall philosophy. Um, the final chapter of the book is just called Speculations and Conclusions. And, and he meditates on the advance of civilization in America. And he um, 
makes fun of that. Talking about how really the first to come is always whiskey. So we, this is this is towards the end of the book. He writes, "How solemn and beautiful is the thought that the earliest pioneer of civilization, the van leader of civilization, is never the steamboat, never the railroad, never the newspaper, never the Sabbath school, never the missionary, but always whiskey." Such is the case. Look history over, you will see. The missionary comes after the whiskey. I mean, he arrives after the whiskey has arrived. Next comes the poor immigrant with axe and hoe and rifle. Next, the trader. Next, the miscellaneous rush. Next, the gambler, the desperado, the highwayman, and all their kindred in sin of both sexes. And next, the smart chap who has brought up an old grand grant that covers all the land. This brings the lawyer's tribes. The vigilant committee brings the undertaker. All of these interests bring the newspaper. The newspaper starts up politics and a railroad. All hands turn to and build a church and a jail. And behold, civilization is established forever in the land. But whiskey, you see, was the vanguard in this beneficent work. It always is. It was like a foreigner and excuse and excusable in a foreigner to be ignorant of this great truth and wander off into astronomy to borrow a symbol. But if he had been or conversant with the facts, he would have said, Westward the jug of empire takes its way. And then this leads him into talking about the origins of St. Paul being also similarly based in, in whiskey. So in a book about the transformation of the American West and the Mississippi, he ends with a reflection on the, the kind of corrupted origins of that. Um, delightfully corrupted, I suppose he might say, but... Uh, but not what Americans like to see. It's like we don't like to look back and see that we were Tom Sawyer, right? We we hide that, we purge that, and we become the oppressors to the next generation's Tom Sawyers. We we don't really want to reflect on on who we are and where we come from. And and I think a book like this asks us to do that a little bit. So, um, anyways, lots of fun. Um, certainly worth reading. I don't think it's, it's read enough and commented on enough. Um, and partially because of the two books that it's sandwiched between in an anthology like this. Because next we have The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Uh, I'll spend three episodes on The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Um, and then one on Puttingham Wilson, which is like an 1890s book, but also set in the Mississippi. Dealing with race and color line and stuff. Um, and then we'll we'll keep moving on through our exploration of the works of Mark Twain. So anyways, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you next time. I'm very excited to begin my uh, my work, my reread of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. I hope you are willing to pick up that book along with me and, and dive into it and be prepared to give me your thoughts about that. Um, so see you next time. She's been here, but she's gone, boy, she's gone. I found her trail in Memphis, but she just walked up the bluff. She raised a few eyebrows, and then she went on down the wall. Now won't you bat it down by Baton Rouge, River Queen?